All right, we turn again. I uh, hope you're not tired of turning to the same place. Um, but we'll uh, talk about two different verses this morning uh, from chapter 3 of Philippians. This is on page 981 if you're joining us and don't have your Bible and you'd like to use the Bible that's in the pew or the chair. Page 981, the little letter of Paul uh, to those who lived in Philippi. Call it the, the Philippian letter. We begin reading with verse 7. After Paul gave an account of what he used to have confidence in, his keeping of the law, we had seen in the past weeks how empty that, quote, blameless life was. This blameless life, according to God's law, uh, was joined to a, a, a person who's, who persecuted God's very people. Uh, so it kind of gives you, a, right in the very context, a picture of the uh, emptiness of this blameless law-keeping. <clears throat> uh, we explored that as we looked some at what the Pharisees taught and how they lived and the new uh, righteousness that stems from those who know the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. So we'll take where he begins in verse 7. As he casts those things aside to have Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us as we come to your word that we would embrace it and believe it and live it out in our lives. That it will indeed enrich us all the more in the immeasurable riches of Christ Jesus. This we pray for your glory. Amen. In a recent Shu comic, Shu was reading an uh, reading this little piece and he said I forget the fellow's name it was a bird that lived in one of the trees you know because she was a, as a bird and uh, so he says something like <clears throat> Clyde Smith lived every day as though it was his last and yesterday he was right <laughs> kind of a brutal way to uh, say that somebody died but what if, uh, what if you lived every day of your life that way and you've come to that day that you're right? And it brings us to this question many times people ask in order to help people ascertain what they want to do in life is picture your own funeral and picture your friends and your family lined up to speak of you. What would you want them to say? What would you want them to have seen in your life, the whole of your life? And sometimes this crystallizes things, right? 
we begin to compare what we want them to say with what we actually do, who we actually are. And this can be very helpful uh, as many have used this to determine what you want to do with your life. And then that boils all the way down to how am I going to spend each day? How am I going to organize my day so that I accomplish these most important things I want in my life? Well, Paul would say, I want people to say he knew Christ. That's what he would say. But then he gives it very specific meaning in this passage. Notice in verse 10. Everything is to the point, even being found in Christ, even having this right relationship with God through Christ is still to this end that I may know him. And you could read this this way, that I may know him. That is that I may know the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and then attain to the resurrection. So that for Paul, in the first place, it's the power of the resurrection that he wants to know. And this, this, for him, this defines knowing Christ. To know that power so that I may become like him in his death, all in hope of final resurrection. Now, I'm going to throw out a word that some of you know and some of you perhaps uh, do not, but... I uh, want us to all get on the same page. And it's the word that many of you use, cruciform, C-R-U-C-I-F-O-R-M, cruciform. And by this term, I mean, and others mean, a life that is formed by the cross of Christ, okay? Formed, you might say, by the crucified one. So, cruciform. A life that then reflects Christ's humility and sacrifice to do others good. A life that is, on the one hand, sustained and comforted and overjoyed by the cross, but also directed by the cross, molded by the cross, stirred by the cross, a cruciform life. I believe this is what Paul is saying, that I may know him and that my life will be a cruciform life. Everything in Paul was bent to know Christ in that way. So here would be a paraphrase of verses 10 and 11. Empowered to live a cruciform life in the hope of final resurrection. Empowered to live a cruciform life in the hope of final resurrection. Now you'll notice how resurrection is the bookends of these four terms, these four phrases. He begins with resurrection, he ends with resurrection. We're going to start with the inner two terms, sufferings, suffering and death, and, and take them, and then we'll get to resurrection toward the end. <clears throat> so he has then this phrase that I may share in his sufferings. Probably a better translation many commentators say is to participate. It's that word koinonia, that I may have koinonia, uh, fellowship or participation in his sufferings. And so you can't know Christ without 
participating in his sufferings. What does that mean? Well, Christ, we can say, and and the background for Paul's words here are are back in chapter 2, which we'll refer back to again and again. And if you've got your Bible open, it's right there, so there's no flipping pages. Christ, we learn in chapter 2, was a willing sufferer for the sake of others. And you and I cannot be conformed to Christ without being conformed to being a willing sufferer for others. So I want the fellowship of his suffering, not just suffering in a general way, but the suffering to bring good to other people. That's the specific suffering of Christ. It really is a more intense form of Jesus' own words in John fifteen twelve, where he says, Love one another as I have loved you. And here is Paul saying, as he was a willing sufferer for me, so I want to be conformed to his suffering and suffer and to, to bring good to others, to bring the gospel, to bring a gospel life to others. You've perhaps been to a Civil War reenactment or Revolutionary War reenactment in which they recreate, right, the very feel and action of the war. Well, as we suffer in living out the love of Christ, our suffering is a reenactment of Christ's story. Paul says here, it's a fellowship in his suffering. Our lives then become an extension of Christ's story, the story of sacrificial love for others. No, we don't suffer the wrath uh, for the wrath of God as Christ did in his suffering. But we do give ourselves away for the good of others as Christ did in his suffering. And so, to borrow the language of Philippians 2, we... Walk in the fellowship of the one who did not consider his status as something to be used to his own advantage, but he poured himself out for others. It is in suffering for the good of others that we reenact his story. And we've all been called to this. In fact, in chapter 1, not just call, but he says in verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is your gift. Okay? God has granted you this privilege. He's granted all of us this privilege of suffering. So we don't participate in His sufferings alone, in isolation. We share in Christ, and so we share in each other. We have a communion of suffering that is spending itself for this world, that is imaging this Christ who gave himself. We all together are walking or participating in Christ's sufferings. And then his next phrase Becoming like him in his death. So that it builds this way so that the suffering, the whole of my life, this suffering is so that I can continually be conformed to the death of Christ. And this would apply to the whole of present life in Christ. So that the whole of our life can be marked 
by being conformed to his death. It has the character of his death. And remember, his death was for others. It's suffering in death that is for the sake of others. In chapter 2, he says, don't do anything from uh, conceit. Count one another as more significant. Look out for others' interests. And, uh, And then he says, have the mind that was in Christ, who didn't consider his own well-being, but he poured himself out so that he might be a servant, even to the point of death. So... Paul is saying, I want to live in such a way that my life bears that likeness of Christ. The one who didn't count himself important in that sense. That poured himself out. This is conforming ourselves to his death. This is a cruciform life. Walter Hansen writes this. We're being conformed to the pattern of Christ's Narrative, okay? Being conformed to the pattern of Christ's narrative. So that his death, his suffering formed this blueprint for all of the Christian life. And Paul says, I want my life to conform to that narrative. It's as though Christ's narrative catches you and me up with the divine imprint of the cross as we live out this gospel In the present age, our lives must be cruciform if they're to count for anything at all. Now, let's bring this to some personal application. If you're single, for instance, you'll have to be careful not to construct your own private, protected, isolated kingdom with hundreds of no trespassing signs out there, right? Now... Some of us married are doing the same thing. You'll look for opportunities to give yourself away to others, perhaps children, youth, older people. Sam Alberry, a single man, writes this. Single people often have a greater capacity for friendship, greater flexibility of lifestyle, and are free to serve in a greater range of ministries than might be the case with their married friends. As a single man, I'm grateful that I've been able to drop everything to spend time with friends in great need. It has meant the world to me to be able to do that, and it would not have been so easy if I were married. I'm thankful, too, for the wide range of good friendships I've been able to cultivate. It is a privilege to be involved in the lives of many other people in this way. It's kind of funny. He talks about the loneliness of being single, but he also talks about visiting families where there's you know, war breaking out among the kids. And he says, I walk away, and I'm grateful that I'm single. <laughs> So there's gratitude in every circumstance, right? But you see, singleness then is a unique and wonderful opportunity for a cruciform life. Husbands, a cruciform life is not coming home and burying yourself in the TV or computer uh, to the exclusion of your wife and kids, insulating yourself, refusing to give yourself for your family. Right? A cruciform life means coming home, pouring yourself into your wife and kids. A happy entrance into their lives. 
Complete attention, full engagement, pouring comfort and security and strength into them by your glad fellowship with them. And Jesus says, when you lose your life, you find it. And you find your life in giving it away to your family. And in marriage, as these words of chapter 2 Count others more significant. Don't look out for only your own interests. So a cruciform life means how do I use my opportunity and all my capacity as a human being to bring good into her life, into his life? How can I bring greater happiness into his or her life? Greater relief and comfort and encouragement and support, listening, observance and appreciation, Pleasure, expressive gratitude and praise. That's part of a cruciform life. You see, the dedication to give myself away and spend myself for this person God has called me into relationship with. Even when we disagree and argue, how right there can I count you as more important? How can my life bear the cross even there as I give up my rights I give up myself to understand you and give myself to you. How do you live out a cruciform life in your family? How about you kids? You may think this leaves you out, right? It it really, I've talked about this a couple of years ago, but we saw this fascinating test that was run on children, pretty young children, in which a child was, let's just say, was given either the choice of five pieces of candy and they knew that the next child that came in would get two pieces of candy, okay? Or you can only get two pieces of candy and the next child gets nothing. Most of them picked the second one. And it shocked, it shocked the people running the test, who didn't realize children were maybe not quite as unselfish as they thought they were. Most parents would say, I got that one, okay. But here's a child that would rather take two instead of five because it means the next one won't have any. And I'll be the only one to have it. Children, it's so hard for us. It's so hard to focus out. And here's a little illustration. If you're in a play or somebody singing, the spotlight's on that one person, right? Everybody else is in the dark and they're, they're not, you're not looking around. You're, you're focused on that person. You know what we're born with? We're born with the spotlight on us. I'm born with the spotlight on me. It's on me. You're in the dark. You're not as important as me. I'm the one in the spotlight. You're not in the spotlight. I am in the spotlight. You imagine if three kids in the same home think I'm in the spotlight. (laughs) There's going to be some trouble, right? You see, I want it first. I want as much as you have, and I can't stand it if you have more than me. But I'm very happy if I have more than you. Because I am in the spotlight, not you. 
I want to play it with it longer than you. And I want to play with it more often than you. Because the spotlight's on me. I'm upset if you have it and I don't. I'm happy if I have it and you don't. You see, that's what we're all like. Spotlight on me. And isn't it amazing that you can be perfectly happy and content until your brother or sister suddenly gets something that you don't have? And then, even though nothing's changed, I have everything I did have one second ago, but suddenly the whole world is over. I'm going to pitch a fit. I'm going to cry. I'm going to roll on the floor because he has this piece of candy and I don't have it. Well, he didn't even have that candy. doesn't matter. He has it and I don't. He's in the spotlight. I'm not. I'm to be the one in the spotlight. Now, if you got the candy and he didn't, be fine, wouldn't it? Probably wouldn't be rolling on the floor, pitching a fit, crying because my brother or sister didn't get a candy like me, right? It's because I am in the spotlight. And that's the thing. All of us, all of us put the spotlight on ourselves. How can we escape this? How can we become cruciform in the way we think and the way we speak to each other and the way we deal with each other? Well, notice before he mentions suffering and death, Paul says that I may know the power of his resurrection. See, there's no hope. There's no hope that I will live a cruciform life. There's no hope that I will give up myself in this way except for the very power of the resurrection. Paul says, that's what I want to know. He said in 2 Corinthians that he died so that we would no longer live for ourselves. He had to suffer and die in order that we would not put the spotlight on ourselves. This is the power of God itself. Because again and again in scripture, it is God that raised up Christ. Like 1 Corinthians 6, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And Paul wants to know the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead. He prays for it in Ephesians 1. That you may know the exceeding greatness of his power that raised Christ from the dead. So this is a regular association that through Christ's resurrection, the very power of God enters into our life. F.W. Beer, a commentator of Philippians, wrote this. The power of the resurrection that Paul's speaking of here is the life-giving power of God, the power which he manifests in raising Christ from the dead and which he now manifests in the new life which the Christian receives From the risen Christ and shares with him. So it's that power that raised Christ from the dead. Now it manifests itself in us. And here's the great irony. The resurrection life manifests itself in our putting ourselves to death. Life manifests itself in my willingness to be conformed to the suffering and death of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful irony, a glorious, mysterious irony, that true life, true God likeness 
as it's planted in us, we begin to spend ourselves. We begin to lose ourselves. We become a part of his sufferings and become like him in his death. You must be raised up with Christ before you will suffer with Christ. You must be raised up with Christ before you want to live out his death. Now, when you apply this to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, where he says, He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in us. Just think of that. He's able to do far more abundantly than I could imagine to bring me to this kind of self-sacrificing love. To do it in ways I'd never thought I could or ways I never certainly did before. I picture my journey of seeking to love others, whether close to me or not as close, as hitting a brick wall constantly. Okay? I just hit the brick wall of my, the limits of my capacity to love. Uh, if you drive the Chisholm Trail, you know, they, some of the exits aren't completed yet. And so here's an exit 30, 40 feet up, and it just ends like that. And I picture that is what happens to us. We just run out the end of our love, you know. And we end up in jealousy and envy and anger and anxiety and sullenness and retreat and maybe crying and pouting. Because our love just can't go that far. We just can't love this unlovable person. I just can't love this person that has wronged me. That's my enemy now. I just, I just can't. I can't love my husband or wife when, after they've done this thing to me. We just hit a brick wall constantly. That's why Paul says, I must know the power of his resurrection. I must have the life of God recreated in me through the Holy Spirit. That the resurrection... Life might manifest itself in me. I must have the power of God to love like God. And I remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He says, look, the pagans like those that like them. Fine. But you show yourself to be a son of God, a child of God, when you love your enemies. Because we learn of God, while we were sinners, he died for us. While we were his enemies, he died for us. That's the kind of love that's recreated in us. No other power can compete with the power that has raised someone from the dead. This power has broken into humanity in a whole and new and different way through the resurrection of Jesus. And God calls us through the good news of Christ to enter into the power of this rescue. The power of personal and community transformation, all of which will one day show itself as the power that makes all things new. All right. That's the power we taught. The power that created the world and one day will recreate the world. This is the power that Paul wants to know so that he can live out this gracious, humble, glad, sacrificial life of Jesus Christ. Mm. 
That's a cruciform life by the power of God. And as he says, this points finally to the resurrection from the dead. He says, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, as I said to begin with, empowered to live a cruciform life in the hope of final resurrection. Our suffering is meaningless, right? Apart from the final resurrection from the dead. And so, as we conform our lives to his death, we have the same hope of resurrection that Christ did. We are empowered to suffer by his resurrection. And we have hope in our suffering through his resurrection. And these are joined together. In Romans 8, Paul says we're heirs of God. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't that amazing? I am right beside Christ to inherit everything he's going to inherit. Then he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. These are words for royalty. The suffering of future kings and queens who are already manifesting their royal character of self-sacrificing love. They're the ones that will reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Those that are conformed to his death. That's royalty. (laughs) Those who lose themselves for others. And it seems a little weird that he says, if by any means possible, as though he's not sure if it's going to happen. But there's this element of humility with Paul. And Hansen has written this, Paul removes the realization of this hope from the realm of human possibility. Only God could bring this about. As though he's saying, how could I be caught up in this final triumph? It's going to have to be God and not me. God's going to have to do it. God is the one who will bring about this final resurrection. And it's interesting, brothers and sisters, though suffering and death will not be a part of the resurrection, this outward attention for the good of others will mark you forever. Okay? There's the common thread. This focus upon others I was thinking about this week, where, uh, about this this week, where God says in Jeremiah thirty two forty one, I will rejoice over them to do them good. You imagine what it's going to be like forever to rejoice. I will rejoice over you to do you good. You will rejoice over me to do me good because you'll be like God. Or that passage we love in Zechariah where he says, he will rejoice over you with singing. I will rejoice over you with singing and you over me. Because we'll be utterly delighted in each other's good. And so in that sense, you see, cruciform, not in the sense of suffering and death, but cruciform in the sense of living out God's perfect love. And that's at least one of the reasons why the Lion of Judah is also the lamb that was slain forever to be celebrated, forever to be admired in his loving sacrifice, you see, to ever be glorified for the love shown on the cross. And we are conformed to that love. So have you recognized Christ 
as the great sacrificial hero of unlimited beauty, of breathtaking goodness. This God of boundless, joyful, reckless, adventuresome love, in which he sacrificed himself for sinners, for losers, for enemies. Are we coming to admire him and adore him? Are we in awe of him? Are we beginning to perceive his character as the perfection of loveliness? Do we want him? Do we want to know him and be like him and conform our ways to him? This is what Christianity is. To be brought into fellowship with this God. And then... To become conformed to this Christ who gave himself away. And as Jesus said, recall this which we've said many times in John 15. In the very context in which he says, love one another as I have loved you. He said, these things about love I have said to you that my joy would be in you. And your joy will be full. You think you're going to lose by love? No, when you become more and more like God in spending yourself, you become more and more the happiest person there is. Because your humanity is being restored. Your likeness to God who gives himself away and is joyful in his love. Jesus says, when you walk in that love, you will know my joy. And your joy will be full. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. Ever be revealing, Lord, your beauty and glory to us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. And these are amazing words. That as we behold his glory. We are transformed From glory to glory in the same image. Oh Lord, may we see that as our glory. Our glory of spending ourselves gladly for others. In our family, in our neighborhood, our community, in our church. For people all over the world. Oh Lord, give us, give us that glory. The very glory of Christ that we see on the cross. We ask this, Lord, for your sake. Amen.